I'll get to Matthew 14 in a, in a few minutes. I want to first of all um, read a verse from 1 Peter. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the same passage or same section of 1 Peter chapter 5, we are warned that the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. In the context of anxiety. And you better believe that the devil will take advantage of the amount of anxiety that is currently out there. Already prior to this coronavirus, our culture has been a culture steeped in anxiety for some time. And it's something that the enemy capitalizes on. What I want to do today is first of all, give you a bit of background into some people and how they have understood the culture that we live in. Um, I'm going to be making a couple of name drops. I hate it when people preach and they don't acknowledge those who have influenced them and influenced their thinking. So I'm going to mention just a few books that I've been reading and a few thinkers that I've been listening to and thinking with. And then we're going to to, to get into, into God's Word. A guy called Mark Sayers, and I have quoted this book so many times in the last few months, but he said, we must understand the emotional landscape of our human systems if we are to partner with God in bringing renewal and healing to the world. We've got to understand the culture that we live in. How humanity is interconnected as a system, how we all, you know, are are related to one another. We've got to understand the cultural moment that we are living in if we are to be God's agents of bringing renewal and change. And this is an anxious culture. Anxiety is chronic and has been chronic for a long, long time. It was sort of brought to my attention about four or five years ago in school. I was doing a Bible study with a group of sixth formers in my room. And one of the things that I did with them at the start of each year was I I gave them post-it notes and I said, listen, if there's anything you want to talk about in this context, it was maybe a dozen sixth formers who had a free period and I had a free period and and we got together and and discussed things from from a biblical perspective. And I said, write down any stuff that you want to talk about. And and I said to them, you can then just anonymously leave it in the fume cupboard. (laughs) Because it's a lab, all right? So there's a fume cupboard. As you're walking out of the room, just chuck it in the fume cupboard. Nobody will know who wrote it. And, and we will address it as the weeks go on. So you get all the usual stuff that teenagers come up with, which I actually love talking about. Um, but, but one of them had written anxiety. And I thought, right, what's, what's this about? And then one day I, I steered the discussion in that direction. and said, so somebody mentioned anxiety as being an issue. Talk to me. And they opened up and they talked about just incredible levels of anxiety that they were experiencing and that their peers were experiencing. And I have to completely hold the hands up and acknowledge the fact that I was ignorant to that for a long, long time. The anxiety that young people in particular are are living under. The Cambridge Dictionary defines anxiety as an uncomfortable feeling of nervousness or worry about something that is happening or might happen in the future. And one guy whose name has come up again and again in the stuff that I have been reading uh, lately is a guy called Edwin Friedman. He was actually a rabbi, and uh, he he wrote about a, a theory called family systems theory. 
But he said that our Western culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into an emotional regression. Anxiety is epidemic, if I can use that word. Anxiety. We are a people who are worried in our Western culture. Worried about things that are going on around us and worried about things that might happen in the future. And he went on to identify five characteristics that he said um, were exhibited in a culture that was dominated by anxiety. Now, this is a bit different this morning, just in case you're wondering. It's obviously a bit different. It's a different day. We don't normally go into stuff like this just in this sort of detail, but I think it's important for, for where we are. He said these five characteristics. One was reactivity. Reactivity. And, and what he meant by that was a people who continuously react to what is going on around them rather than being driven by what is within them. Okay? That when something happens in our culture or in our society, it brings a reaction out of us. It could be a reaction of outrage. It could be a a reaction of fear. It could be a reaction of anxiety. But he says one of the characteristics of of, of an anxious culture is we're constantly reacting to what's going on on the outside We are not actually driven by by internal realities and truths that are within us. He also said we have a herd mentality. Not a very pleasant term maybe to refer to us as a herd. Uh, But basically a herd all go the same place together. Um, Whenever I let the dogs out in the morning, the dogs go and bark at the hedge. And the sheep all en masse in the field beside us run off to the far side of the field. Like a herd, a flock. And and he he said that human beings have this herd mentality that we are influenced by the crowd. We're influenced by the culture that we are in. When we live in this, when this anxiety is is exhibited by our culture, things spread from person to person very, very quickly. Now, I'm not talking about physical, biological viruses. I'm talking about mindsets and points of view. When we're not driven by internal realities and internal truth and unchanging truth, then what happens is we go with the crowd. Again, exhibit A is probably people in the age group from about maybe 16 to 30. A herd mentality. Mark Sayers again says that anxiety is highly infectious, spreading through social systems at a swift pace with the ability to overwhelm us rapidly to the point that you can't buy soap (laughs) or loo roll. Anxiety, the herd mentality, it has just spread like wildfire. Social media is then just an absolute petri dish for this sort of anxiety it spreads so quickly through the herd another place where it will spread quickly is the news cycle one of the things that i'm trying so hard even just this last 48 hours is get off the bbc news app because <laughs> i've been going to it and opening it again and again and again i'm just being honest with you i've been looking at it and then an hour later i'm looking at it again and like right stop it Stop it. I'm trying to put into, into place a simple, a really simple practice of, you know, before I open the BBC News app, open the Bible and read something first. 
Okay, get the mind conditioned with some truth and then check the news if you want. But that news cycle that is just continuously being updated, that again spreads and breeds into that herd mentality where, where fear and anxiety goes from person to person very, very quickly. Another thing that he said is, is characteristic of a, an anxious culture is blame displacement. The inability to accept responsibility for anything. And continuously saying it was her fault. It was his fault. If that thing hadn't happened. And again, what we're doing is we're not being driven by an internal reality. In our case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not being driven by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. If we're living and being influenced by an anxious culture, we're driven by the actions of others. That person wronged me and therefore I can do whatever the flip I like because I've been wronged. And we never take responsibility for our own actions in this sort of a culture. Uh, Friedman also said that, that an anxious culture will have a quick fix mentality. I mentioned this a few weeks ago as well, that we are so used to getting everything instantly. Amazon Prime has ruined me. I mean ruined me to the point that if I don't get it the next day, I'm clean raging like... If something happens and it's delayed, or if I get it the next day, but it's like 6 p.m., what good is that? I wanted it at 9 a.m. I didn't want it at 6 and I only maybe ordered it at midnight the night before. But we're living in this. We have been ruined by constantly getting what we want immediately. We might, over the next few months, have to learn to live differently. But a quick, quick fix mentality that then gets within the culture that the culture has what, what, what Mark Sayers calls and a lot of people refer to as a low pain threshold and a people who cannot persevere. A people who have no resilience. Resilience is a beautiful word that Linda uses in counseling. It's, it means the ability to bounce back from pressure. When something puts pressure on you, resilience is the ability to actually bounce back from that pressure again, to rebound. And our culture does not do that. Our culture curls up in a ball in the corner of the room because we, we expect everything to come to us and we don't get it. And then the last thing that Friedman identified was <clears throat> what he called a lack of well-differentiated leadership. Let me explain what that means. Big words. Uh, differentiated leadership is the ability to be in the culture but to step aside from it and say, you're anxious, I'm not. Okay? You are fearful, I'm with you, I understand, but I am not fearful. I'm not going to be influenced by the culture around me. I am differentiated from it. Even though I'm living within it, you are angry. Have you ever sat down with someone who's just pulsing with rage about something that has been done to them? Okay, you're angry. I understand your anger. I will sit with you. I won't get angry. The ability to differentiate yourself is so important if we're going to influence the culture that we're living in. And right now, every single child of God, I believe, is called to be a leader in this culture. In the moment that we're in, a leader in the way that we influence the culture around us. That we influence those who, are we, who we are in contact with. The one thing I want to achieve tomorrow in work you know, down the priority list, I've got a couple of things I'd just love to get finished off with my sixth formers. Love to, because I don't know what's going to happen. I've no idea what's going to happen. Nobody does. 
But the one thing I want to achieve tomorrow is I want to walk into that classroom and be a non-anxious presence. I want to be differentiated from the culture around me and I want to bring calm. I want to bring peace. I want to bring hope. I want to dispel fear. That anxious culture, a culture that is just perpetrated and just just soaking in these, these issues, reactivity and herd mentality and blame displacement and a quick fix mentality, that culture will, will then breed a lack of well-differentiated leadership to the point that the leaders in that culture just behave like the rest of the culture. And it takes a lot of guts, a lot of courage, a lot of backbone, a lot of faith to step out of that and say, I'm not actually going to get sucked in to the whirlwind that's going on. I'm not. I'm not going to belittle it and talk about that later, but I'm not going to get sucked into it. A well-differentiated leader. And Friedman, as he, as he concluded these five points about an anxious culture, he said the only way, and you listen to me and listen well, <laughs> the only way to stop this cycle was to inject into the middle of it a non-anxious presence. That's the only way. Culture leans towards those five things. And the only way to stop it and influence it and change it is to inject a non-anxious presence into the middle of it. The picture again this week is from Daniel Bonnell. I don't know if any of you checked him out from last week, but boy, that fellow with a paintbrush is a tasty job. It's Jesus and he's walking on the water. So Matthew 14 Let's read. Is that interesting to you at all? Are you bored out of your mind and thinking, when's he going to actually preach? Is that all right? Yeah. Um, Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Just on a side note, John Mark Comer says that's a definition of church planting right there, (laughs) buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. This is where the disciples are out on the lake, and Jesus is away on a mountainside on his own praying. Shortly before dawn, or during the fourth watch of the night, as some Bibles would say, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Shortly before dawn, fourth watch of the night, the Hebrews, the Jews, divided the night into four sections called four watches. And the fourth watch of the night was what we would call from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It was the darkest part of the night. The darkest part of the night. And this is the stage that the disciples are in. So they have already been out there. We could, we could bang the heat on maybe, could we, girls? Is it getting cold? Um, they're already out there battling the wind and the waves for hours on their own without Jesus. And whenever they see him coming, they think it's a ghost. And you think, well, you've, 
idiots. But no, Galilee was famous for ghost stories. They thought that everyone who died on the lake then haunted the lake. And it was just a place that was full of myths and ghost stories. And I don't know about you, but if I was out on a lake in the middle of the night in a storm and I saw somebody walking on the water, I'd probably get a bit spooked as well. You know, we all like to pretend we're wild courageous, but you'd probably have a wee moment where, where you'd get worried. And they also had this thing in ancient mythology and, and the background of that culture was that the water was a chaotic place. Bad things came out of the water because they couldn't control it. Because there was wind and waves and storms, bad things came out of the water and therefore they feared the chaos of the water. And Jesus comes walking to them and he says to them immediately, and this is a non-anxious presence in the middle of the storm. Jesus says to them three things. He says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. A non-anxious presence brings courage to people. Church, as the people of God, as the body of Christ, as followers of King Jesus, your mission is to bring courage to people to bring strength to them. When their strength is failing and fading, your calling is that when you're with them, they receive courage. I love the word encourage. It means to put strength into the heart, to put something into the heart that when you're with people, they leave you feeling more courageous than they did before they came. So a non-anxious presence brings courage. Second thing he says is, it is I. Now, you'll not get this in your English translations. But in Greek, Jesus does not say, it is I. He says, ego eimi, which means, I am. Now, if you know your Old Testament, I am is the name that God reveals himself to Moses with at the burning bush. We know it as Yahweh. It becomes Jehovah in English. I am who I am. And when Jesus stands on the water in the midst of that storm, he declares that he is God. <laughs> He's not some lesser person. He is not you know, just, just a servant or someone who's, who's sent to do a bit of the rough work that God has to do. He stands and he says, I am. He's declaring to them, I am the presence of God with you. A non-anxious presence brings the presence of God into situations. That's what we are called to do, to bring the presence of God. There's nothing like it. It's the safest place on earth. You don't have to be in church to experience it. It's Jesus says, I am with you always, <laughs> always, unchanging, never failing, always with us, always present in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. A non-anxious presence goes into that culture of anxiety and brings the presence of God. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And the third thing that Jesus says is, don't be afraid. It's been mentioned already as we've prayed this morning and the, the, the song that, that Nigel mentioned, because he lives, all fear is gone. No matter what happens, King Jesus has conquered death and the grave. No matter what happens, we need not fear. 
We need not fear what goes on around us. And a non-anxious presence gets rid of fear. There was a kid in school just asked me something the other, the other day that she was worried about. And I just dis- dispelled the fear. And she was like, ah, okay. And she smiled. I was like, that's good. Good job. Okay. We dispel fear in people. Because the 24-7 news cycle... Like you look at the newspaper headlines and you will just see fear mongering. It's like who can be the most dramatic that can get you to part with your whatever to buy their newspaper? Who can, who can portray things in the most shocking way so that they will get your money, so that their advertisers will get your money? Fear. Fear just comes into a situation like this and tries to capitalize on it. Fear cripples people. And Jesus also says, whenever Peter, good old Pete, whenever Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come uh, to you on the water. Jesus says, come. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. A non-anxious presence does not just walk above the storm, but empowers others to walk above the storm as well. It's not just that we as the people of God walk on the waters of the storm, but that when we see others, we pull them up and we say, come on up here. Because we are enthroned in heavenly places with King Jesus. He is enthroned. He is raised from the dead. All powers and principalities, every single thing in the universe is under his feet. And Ephesians 2 goes on to say that we are made alive and raised up and we are sitting with him, which means everything is under our feet as well. So we don't only walk on the water of the storm ourselves. We challenge not even challenge we invite we reach down and grab others and we pull them up to walk on it with us that's what a non-anxious presence looks like and that's the sort of people that we need to be in our culture at this time there's a, an author called sarah young i don't know an awful lot about her but she she did a kids sort of bible devotional thing called jesus calling and I think some other books around that concept as well. But she, in one of the entries in that kid's book, she takes the words of Jesus and she paraphrases them in a beautiful way and writes, Anxiety is a result of envisioning the future without me. That's good. Anxiety is a result of envision, envision, I can't even say it now, seeing the future, looking into the future without Jesus. Is he in your future? He's in mine. You better believe it. (laughs) He's in our future. And anxiety only comes when we look into the future and vision the future without him in it. As long as he's in it, anxiety does not get a foothold in our lives. Is he in your future? The best defense against worry is staying in communication with him. Amen? That's good. Now, so I've mentioned a couple of names already, and and another guy that I've just been listening to a little bit lately is a guy called John Mark Comer. Um, And he said that our world is in desperate need for followers of Jesus 
to step in as a non-anxious presence and break the vicious cycle of toxic anxiety. That was about two months ago before this thing really sort of kicked off. We need to be a people who are differentiated, that we're not driven by what's going on around us, but we are internally driven by a vision, by a calling, by an anointing. Instead of the atmosphere of anxiety driving us, that's what drives us, and we model a different reality to the world around us. We lack fear. We refuse to fear, and that will give courage to others. You don't need to go and say to somebody, don't be afraid. When they see you fearless, they'll love it. It's contagious and it's infectious and they'll be drawn to it rather than the emotionally anxious, toxic atmosphere that society all around them is. You read about leaders in history. Sayers in his book talks about Charles Simeon who stood against the culture and raised the church to a different level in the 18th century. And while he was doing it, literally while the guy was preaching, people were breaking windows of the church because they hated him. Because he was drawing around him a people who loved his fearlessness, his courage, his, his honor and his integrity in the word of God and the way he ministered to people. He was drawing people and the culture around him reacted against him. His own church, don't you dare ever do this, his own church locked him out so that he couldn't preach because his message was so radical. And instead he went and started preaching in the homes of people who who caught a vision for what the man was about. You see, we have got to be differentiated from the culture. We've got to be fearless. My Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. And it says suffer with those who suffer. It does not say worry with those who worry. It does not say fear with those who fear. I'll sit with people who are worried, but I won't worry with them. I will differentiate myself from that and I'll change the culture that I'm going into. I will sit with people who are fearful or who are angry, but I will not join them in that fear and anger. We must be a non-anxious presence in our culture. And what Friedman said as well was that it wasn't a leader's or a person's intelligence or techniques or tactics or talent that affected the culture that they went into. The non-anxious presence affected the culture by being there. And that was it. Just had to be there. Didn't come with a whole list of things. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do But actually just their presence affected the culture. It wasn't about what a person did. It was about who they are. All right. It's about who you are. Don't walk into work tomorrow or into home today or in whatever scenario you're going. Don't thinking, what will I do, church? Don't think that. Go into it thinking, who will I be? Who will I be? Who will I be when I go into work tomorrow? You'll be Jesus to people. You'll be filled with the Holy Ghost and the presence of God and you'll bring hope into that anxious culture. Ultimately, it's his presence that we need to carry. We can't do it in our own strength. We must bring him and his healing presence. So how do we become a non-anxious presence? A couple of things we will not do. We will not glibly tell people that everything will be all right. The church can be really good at times like this in just wheeling out comments that are belittling to what is going on in society. 
We will not do that. Jesus said, I've told you these things so that you may have peace in me, but in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We bring a message of one who has overcome. We don't bring a trite message of it'll all be okay. We know it'll all be okay in the long run, in the long term, because we serve a risen Savior. But we're not going to walk in in, in, in just and throw out like Donald Trump um, three or four days ago. His, his, his statement was, it'll go away, quote unquote. It'll go away. That's trite. That is not taken seriously. The suffering that people are going through, it will go away eventually. But right now, it's real and it's present and people need hope. And they don't need Christians running around carelessly coming out with little comments like that. So we will not glibly tell people that it's not a big deal. And another thing that we will not do is we will not disobey the government. Because the government, according to Paul in Romans, everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, if the government tell the church that the church can no longer be the church, we'll disobey them, okay? But if the government tell us to wash our hands, we'll wash our hands. If the government tell us to refrain from handshakes and hugs, we will refrain from it. We will do what we're told. We will do what we're told. Now, that is an that is coming as agreed from the leadership of the church. We will not ignore advice that we are given. We're not going to do it. Because again, there is no sense in it at all. We will obey the governing authorities until they tell us to do something that is contrary to Scripture. So things that we will do. One, we will abide. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is a time when you need to abide in Jesus. You need to be in his presence. You need to change your daily schedule if that's what's required so that you are sitting in the presence of God. Just cut back on the rushing around. If there's one positive thing, we've probably all got a bit more time on our hands in the evenings than we maybe are used to. Abide, church, abide. Still yourself, quieten yourself. Get into a quiet place and just abide in the presence of God if you want to be a non-anxious presence in the world. We will pray. One of the things that will continue here is prayer meetings. In fact, we might even have some more now that we have time on our hands to have some more. But we will pray. And can I just tell you something? And this might come across as a bit severe. But I tell you what, if we are not on our knees in these days, praying for our nation, praying for our health service, praying for our government to have wisdom, praying for our family members, praying for the church and the community, praying that the gospel would spread in this environment that we're now living in. If we're not doing that, we're a joke. We're a complete joke. Seriously, church, just take it and do what you like. I don't care what you say. But if your intention is 
to, to just fester at home in front of the TV with a box of Pringles every night for the next three months. Shame on you. Get on your knees and cry out to God because we have never seen something like we're seeing right now in our lifetime. We've never seen it. First century church saw it all the time. Loads of plagues. Loads of sicknesses. No medical care. They had dealt with stuff like this and they continued to meet and praise God and lift him up. All right? They didn't have Netflix. But I'm serious. If we can't... I'm, get me now. If we cannot get on our faces before God and cry out for our nation, we're a joke. Don't drop the ball, church. Don't drop the ball on this one. Our prayer lives... Here's another thing that should come out of this that is positive. Our prayer lives should go exponential. If someone could you know, get one of those stupid graphs about the, the spread of this virus and, and get rid of it and plot a graph of how the church prays, mm-hmm, should be an exponential upward curve. We have a responsibility. Don't drop the ball. So we will continue to pray. You need to rest. That's just some simple biblical advice. You're going to face some changes over the next few months that require you to be able to absorb probably a bit of stress. None of us likes getting our routine changed. One of the worst things for children is a change in routine. Kids hate it. Kids love routine. They love when when something's predictable. This happens at that time and this happens at that time. And all of a sudden something doesn't happen and there's just complete carnage. All right? You know, he's just like, we're not having breakfast this morning. What? You know, the routine has changed at church and it's like, oh, everything goes out the window. But we always, you need to rest and you need to have energy emotionally, physically, spiritually in every way in order to absorb the changes that we will have to absorb. We need to meet. Meet. We need meat as well, Mike, M-E-A-T. We need meat. But we need to meet. All right? Hebrews 10. Now you just write this all over everything because this is a biblical command and we will abide by it in some way as things go on. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We will continue to meet The format of it might change slightly as it already has done this morning, but the church will continue to meet, to encourage one another, to proclaim the word of God, to worship our King. We will continue to meet. Who knows what it'll look like? No idea. Might be in houses for a while. Might be in smaller groups. I I don't know, but we will meet. (laughs) We will meet because we have a biblical mandate, no matter what anyone says, to meet, to encourage one another. And in that meeting and in that fellowship, some people, we need to be aware of people who will be lonely. We need to be aware of people in our own community of faith who very easily could become isolated and make sure that they don't. We need to also be aware, as the first century church did, they had everything in common. And if somebody was struggling financially, the church helped. Like. People may well have see their income drop. We don't know. But the church will help. I just say that. I haven't asked for approval, but I just got it from Daniel, so we're okay. The church will help. The church has got finances and funds set aside. We're not going to buy a, a new house. But 
if you're getting it tight, you come and you tell us because that's the way the church works. That's the way that, and as this goes on, we'll maybe even just lift a collection someday and put it in a pot and say, right, that's for, for people who are finding it's difficult. Right? That's the church. That's what meeting, fellowship, and looking after one another looks like. So we will continue to meet and we will seek to serve. So important. Don't drop the ball in, in prayer. And don't drop the ball in an opportunity to show the love and the goodness of God to our community. Andy Crouch, who wrote a, a brilliant article that's, that's on the web, um, quite a long article that he, that he published this week. But he said in it, we must lead in a way that reduces fear, increases faith, and listen to this, reorients all of us from self-protection to serving others. What is our instinct in this moment to protect ourselves with as much hand wash as we can get or to serve others? There is a degree of responsibility. There is a degree of preparation and planning that we all must engage in. But church, we've got to get our instinct is how can we love our town? How can we love our neighbor at this time? And to that end, without even realizing that all of you by walking in the door have volunteered um, and I have volunteered you without your consent and I've contacted local councillors and I've said, if there's anything we can do, tell me. If you need a few of us just to go out a couple of nights a week, go to the supermarket, get a whole slab of milk and bread and deliver it to a few houses around the town and just literally set it on the doorstep for people who are already isolated, who are already lonely and who are now scared because they don't want to go out, that we could just go and we don't even need to have contact with them because they'd probably be scared to have in contact, but that we could just go and get them some stuff, leave it on the doorstep, knock the door and say, here you go, we love you. Let us know if you need anything more. We will seek opportunities to serve our town. We will. Because again, if the church does not rise up and show love and compassion in this moment, who knows when we'll get a chance to do it again on this level. And above all, we will seek to exalt the one who is the ultimate non-anxious presence, King Jesus. Those are just a few thoughts pulled together in a short period of time without enough sleep. Probably more could be added to it, but these are just the priorities that, that come to mind at this time. Let's pray.